or you feel a sense of, you know, you want to serve your country like your father did and your grandfather did and your great grandfather did. And you want to do your part to earn your keep in your country. You know, freedom isn't free. Somebody's got to go pay that price. You know, if you're doing it for those reasons, it's, 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 it's very different than doing it for the pragmatic reasons that we talked about, you know, before. And it's, it fuels you, you know, to, to be out there doing hard things because you're driven by, you know, the love of your country. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part three of our mini-series on special operations lessons for business with Al Buford. Um, Al's a 20-year veteran of the special operations community in the 75th Regiment of Army Rangers, as well as the Army Special Mission Unit. He's a co-founder of Patriot Group, which this year is going to hit $100 million in revenue, it looks like, as well as a co-owner of Echo Analytics Group and a very valued volunteer for our charity Child Rescue Association. Al, for part three here, uh, how about we start with just what principles and practices from the Ranger and Special Operations Units you feel like have served you well in building your business? Well, thanks, Jess. I appreciate the chance to be here. I think being comfortable with discomfort is is something that I feel like um, I feel like being comfortable with discomfort is something that is uh, it, it, you learn a lot about in military service, specifically in the Ranger Regiment. You, you definitely learn about being comfortable with discomfort in Ranger School, as an example. And I have a on my desk, I have a canteen cup. You know, it's a metal cup that goes in the bottom of a canteen, and I keep it there kind of as a reminder of you know the reason I I, I took great pride in trying to make myself comfortable in, in really uncomfortable situations of being wet and cold and tired and hungry and uh, making myself a little, a little something warm to drink in the morning when I'm shivering and freezing, you know, before we move out on a movement or whatever. And I keep this as a reminder when I'm in the back office and I'm tired because we've been recruiting or writing a proposal or working a long hour on a project or something and I start to maybe feel a little bit sorry for myself and my situation. I look at this canteen cup and I go, oh, this isn't so bad. <laughs> so being comfortable with discomfort and, and, and as it relates to business, often it's financial discomfort, you know, you know, the fear of the unknown with, a, with you know, growing your business and trying to invest in things. I'm not sure if they're going to pay off, you know, putting all your chips in the middle on something. Is it going to work or is it not work? Uh, if it works, great. You know, we can hire more people and, you know, make a little money. And if it doesn't work, hmm, we might have to take on investors or whatever. You know, there's there's all those, those things you have to deal with. And so I would say that's one lesson, being comfortable with discomfort. Another one is assessing risk versus reward and then being willing to take those calculated risks. You know, that's something you learn a lot about in military service and you do a lot of risk assessment and it's, it's often life and death. And that skill set works in business. You know, it's people use the terms return on investment, risk versus reward. My business partner, Rob Woodfield came up with one called return on frustration. You know, 
certain customers or certain projects or, you know, they may be so painful that they're just not worth, there's just the return isn't worth the frustration involved. And I like that one. Return on frustration is great. But so assessing the risk and reward. And another really good one is uh, the discipline to focus on and, and be good at your mission essential tasks. You know, the Ranger Regiment is really good at focusing on mission essential tasks and getting people to stay on that as their focus. You know, they're not out, you know, back in my day, it was, uh, you know, uh, shoot, move, communicate, navigate, medical skills. You know, those are the sort of things that if you were, if you were training on that, you could do any mission that came your way if you were proficient at those things. Um, but if you get sidetracked uh, and you spend, you know, 40 hours a week doing jujitsu or trying to pick locks or whatever, you can be uh, really good at something that's not mission essential. And, and at the same time, not be good at the things you need to be good at. You know, if you're not an expert uh, marksman with your assigned weapon, but you're really good at Mandarin Chinese, well, I mean, that isn't necessarily going to help you as a ranger. You know, you, you need to be focused on your mission essential tasks. And then everything that's mission enhancing, that's nice to do once you're an expert at the things that are your primary mission. So uh, I would say in, in business, it's really easy to get sidetracked by things that don't add value to your business. You know, going to seminars and going to networking events and getting sucked into social media, you know, those kinds of things can can really get you sidetracked and, and take you off your mission. You know, your mission is to most for-profit businesses that want to survive. Well, they have to make money. And to make money, you got to add value to somebody's organization. You got to do something for them that adds value and helps them. And so, you know, focusing on those mission essential tasks required to grow your business, that's great. If you spend all your time on corporate social responsibility, but you're not making a profit, you're just going to crash and burn. No. So, yeah, I'll give you another couple if you want me to keep going. Yeah. Not having single points of failure, you know, always having contingency plans and backups for everything that's mission essential. You know, if there's only one person in your company that can make payroll happen and that person can't make it into work or, you know, gets hurt or is in the hospital or whatever, or they go to some other organization and you don't have that backup in place and you don't have the process documented, People aren't going to get paid on time. And that's one of the most important things you have going on in your business is getting people paid on time and accurately. You fail at that, everything else is going to start crumbling. And it really, people lose confidence in the, in, in the leadership if, they can't, if you can't get paid on time. And so um, no single points of failure. Being situationally aware enough to know when you need to shift to your contingency plan or whatever your alternate course of action is. And in business, you, the, the common word is pivot. Right. But you, you have to be situationally aware to know that you should pivot. You know, you can you can you can make the best eight track tapes in the world. But if, if we're, you know, five generations beyond that in terms of what's relevant in the world, you know, you didn't pivot in time. Right. Sears is a great example of that. They invented ordering something from your house and having it delivered, you know, or at least they, they made better progress with it than anybody with the Sears catalog back when I was a kid and they got trashed by Amazon and now they're going bankrupt or whatever they're doing. They're, they're seriously in decline if they're not already done. So be situationally aware enough to know when you need to shift, you know, to your contingency plan to adapt to a new market requirement or whatever. So those are some of the lessons learned that from the military that apply directly to business. I love it. Well, I want to ask some questions about some of them. Maybe I'll get you to re re review this list a couple of times. Let, let's do it right now. Can you give me that list again? Yep. So being comfortable with discomfort, 
assessing risk versus reward and being willing to take calculated risks, discipline to focus on and uh, be good at your mission essential tasks, no, no single points of failure, be situationally aware enough to know when you need to shift to your contingency plan or to your alternate course of action. You know, I want to talk about the risk one first, maybe. You know, I sure. feel like so many folks who are not entrepreneurs or investors, maybe they pursue risk avoidance strategies where I feel like the entrepreneurs or investors that I look up to, Warren Buffett, anybody, it's almost like uh, they're not doing risk avoidance. They're doing risk mitigation. Like they're they're accepting, like they're willing to move forward into risk, but they're building in insurance policies and and capping the downside and, you know, contingency plans and backups rather than avoid the situation altogether. And as a result, they get to make so much progress because of it, because it's not, because by with like, it feels like, and I want to hear your input on this. It feels to me like risk avoidance is also like a growth avoidance where risk mitigation is you've got a shot at growth, being honest about the fact that you may not get there and you've got some, you got some backup plans if you don't kind of thing. Is that, how would you say that different? Do you see it different? Do you have any ideas on that? Well, yeah. So if your only objective as a special operations leader is to bring everybody home alive and you just put everybody in a bunker, well, you're going to bring everybody home alive, but you're not going to accomplish anything, right? So you have to determine how can we accomplish this mission and mitigate our risk as much as we possibly can. And so just like Kyle Lamb was telling me that, you know, when he, when he talks to police leaders, he says, you know, he asks them what's the most important thing, you know, as a leader and he said quite often he gets the answer, you know, bringing everybody home alive at the end of their shift is the most important thing. And, you know, and if you think, oh, people are our most important resources and it's the most important thing to us. Okay, great. Just okay, well, what about if there's a, an active shooter at the school? Is your most important thing to bring your people home alive that day? Well, no, your most important thing is to keep those kids alive. And you're going to have to take some risk in making that happen. So I don't know if I answered your question or not, but that's that's what comes to mind. Yeah. Well, I'm no, I love it. I'm, I'm wondering if you have any stories, any thoughts about whether in the Rangers, special mission unit, anywhere that that was a calculated lit risk that wasn't a guarantee of safety, but just any of your thought process. Do, do you remember a story? Is there anything you can share that comes to mind? Well, I think both in the military and in business. If so, a leader's job is to assess assess risk, mitigate it to the extent that you can, and then go out there and accomplish your mission, you know, and some of it has to do with resources and timing and techniques and methods and all that of, of how you do all that. But if in the military, in a gray operating environment or, or in business, the only advisor you listen to are your lawyers, well, you will never accomplish anything because their job is to eliminate risk. They will tell you, if you do everything the lawyers say, you, you will never leave your base You'll never accomplish anything in business because you'll never take any risk. So you, you kind of have to you weigh the advice of trusted you know, legal advisors, for example, and you mitigate their risk. And often they're very good at advising you how to mitigate risk, you know, and various kinds of insurance and all those things, and various documents that you use in your business that will help you mitigate your risk and how you word things. But at the end of the day, there's usually going to be some residual risk, and that's, that's what business leaders do. They, they, they take the risk to go and get the job done, and sometimes you end up dealing with some fallout. But ultimately, if you manage it well, it'll be something that's, that you can, you can live with and you can overcome. So I guess my maybe another question is, 
in business specifically, going the other direction. There is, you know, my understanding is the word decision ha- comes from the root word that has to do with die. And it's kind of this idea of like to make a decision, you're killing one path to choose another kind of a thing. And that feels risky. You know, like I think all of us would rather try and serve every client instead of narrowing in or things like this. And, you know, you can only spend the coin of time once. And so to pursue this marketing or sales plan means that that's time you don't have available to do another one. I'll give an example. So in business, in the early days of Patriot Group, you know, we we had no revenue and we went for a good, you know, six months of no paychecks, you know, and it's, it's a hump that a lot of people can't get, they can't get over that hump and their business collapses and then they go off and take a J-O-B somewhere, right? But we, we wanted to make sure that we were committed. And so we signed a three-year lease on a startup company on a, that had no revenue. And that was our way of saying, you know, we are marching forward. We're burning the ships. There is no retreat. And this is the direction we're going. And we're going to make this happen. We're going to make it work. We were committed. And there was no quit in us. And we, by any objective measure in business, we failed miserably for quite a while. Eventually had a little bit of success, you know, like the slot machine, just enough to keep you engaged, just enough to keep you. And so then in that we built on that and we built on some more and little pieces of work here and there and ultimately took on a couple of investors to help us get over that hump. And, and so we grew it over time and we just, we just refused to quit. We were willing to do whatever it took to be successful and quitting was not enough. Enduring some, some short-term failure was fine, but quitting wasn't something we were going to do. We weren't going to go back and work for somebody else. We were going to make, and we did. That's fun. You know, it's, it's interesting, you know, because in certain ways that could be taken as adding more risk, signing a three-year lease when you don't have income, right? But in, in another way, it's almost like a hedge against human temptations to quit, right? Yeah. What about this? When you're, you know, you're, you're out there trying to land big giant contracts, right? And to pursue one, you know, maybe means you don't have as much time to spend, to spend on another one. When you're making decisions, hey, it's, you know, it's this government entity, it's that one that we're going to put the extra effort in. What, what is some of the decision-making process for you, you know, essentially taking the risk of pursuing the wrong organization? Yeah, well, I think in government contracting, there's some very specific uh, criteria for bidding on pieces of work. And so, you know, if you're, if you're kind of a labor-based services business, uh, you're not going to be a credible bidder. You're not going to meet the requirements to bid on a contract that requires you to produce satellites, right? And so the government is able to put criteria in place that kind of pre-qualifies bidders. And so you can look at what are the past performance requirements and decide, yes, we're able to bid this credibly, or no, we shouldn't bid that because we're going to look stupid and, and we're not even going to make it through the first gate. And so you got to know what space you're in and know what you can do. You can't do everything for everybody. So figure out what it is you're going to do and then focus on that. And uh, what customers can we be credible with? You know, uh, can we be credible with Amazon or could we be more credible maybe with Department of Defense? I think the latter, you know, so as an example. So you, you go th- and then you look at a procurement and you say, oh, well, this is a recompete for an existing piece of work. 
Let's look at how this procurement document is written. Is it written in a way that makes it clear that they really like the incumbent? Or maybe can we go find out if they really like the incumbent? And what's the chance of taking a piece of work away from a well-liked incumbent, less than 30% if you look at descriptive statistics? So that's a no-bid decision, very easy decision. But if you have, there's a piece of work out there where the incumbent is floundering and they've gotten some cure notices and everybody that works for them hates them and the customer hates them. Well, now there's an opportunity that we might consider if that's within our core competency and we feel like maybe we have some competitive advantages in one way or another, then that's something we should consider bidding. And it's better to do your homework like that and bid less, bid, bid, bid fewer. But, you know, it's like taking a sniper shot versus shooting with a machine gun. You know, you want to take sniper shots in your bids. And uh, that's, that's kind of our approach. Younger companies, including us, you know, will often bid more and win less because they're just, they're just machine gunning it and not hitting very much. Yeah. You know, uh, this is a total tangent, but I'd be interested in your answer. Um, Speaking about sniper shots, I'm interested in any maybe principles of that, that, that the rest of us may not know. I'm thinking about, you know, Tom Bigley teaching me about like, he feels like the primary lesson is get good aim and don't disturb the weapon in pulling of the trigger or something. And any other principles that the rest of us may not have framed, you know, under, you know, we watch the movies, but we don't pick up how it really works. Well, you know, bring enough ammunition to the fight. So in business, the ammunition is money, right? So, you know, your, your, your money, your financial capacity, whether it's your line of credit or whatever it is, has to be sufficient to apply those resources to the bidding process. And in a government contract, I mean, some proposal documents can be hundreds of pages long and you can't have one discrepancy in your compliance to what questions they're asking you to answer. You can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars producing a proposal with specialized consultants and your own labor hours of your staff. And, you know, that all costs money. And so you're, you're shoving a whole bunch of chips in the middle. And when you do that, it needs to be for something that's a real opportunity for you. You know, if, if the incumbent has got that thing locked up and you're spending a couple of hundred thousand dollars, well, you'd have been better off to just put that money in your pocket or use it for something else, you know, or save it for an opportunity that might be uh, a higher probability of win for you. Yeah. Well, let's, let's go back to your list. Can we get your list again and maybe we'll pick one more? Sure. Okay. So lessons learned from special operations that have helped in business. So being comfortable with discomfort. Assessing risk versus reward and being willing to take calculated risks. Discipline to focus on and be good at your mission essential tasks. No single points of failure is a really important one. And be situationally aware enough to know when you need to shift your to your contingency plan or to an alternate course of action. We've, we've been pretty good at making, making some lemonade out of lemons a few times and actually working ourselves into situations that end up coming out to, to our advantage with, with that last one. And any, any story there you can share? Any specifics? Um, yeah, there was an organ. There was a, a requirement for cleared construction managers, and uh, you know they they needed to have a pretty high level of clearance, and there just weren't that many to go around, you know. And uh, it was one of those situations where we saw an opportunity. You know, big organizations are not agile enough to do what we did. You know, they're just big machines, and they just can't. This is kind of a small thing for them, and it wasn't something that we're going to put a lot of effort into. But what we did is we. We figured out a way over time to uh, take experienced construction managers who had a lot of overseas time in hostile places and uh, and get them cleared and put them. And this was like a year long plan. It wasn't something that we did overnight, 
But, you know, for five or six years, that benefited us as a small business that was really struggling to make ends meet. So we, we just figured out a way to, to, to skin a cat. You know, there was, it was a supply and demand equation like we talked about earlier. And we figured out a very creative way to solve that problem. And uh, it helped the government. It helped the customer. Uh, it obviously benefited us. And it benefited the individuals who, you know, had work opportunities they wouldn't have otherwise had. Total tangent. Is there financial cost to your company to get somebody a clearance or is that all on the government side? No, not really. Just the administrative time. You take the process, you know, you've got a, you've got a person on your staff that, that deals with helping them get through all the hoops. But, you know, it's not like the government sends you a bill for that. Okay. I think maybe my next question is back to this being comfortable with discomfort. You know, you talked about you talked about uh, something we all suffer with, which is the temptation to feel sorry for ourselves sometimes, you know, um, thinking of, you know, being in one of the most elite, elite special operations organizations in the world, if not the most elite one, there's a prerequisite for that, right? C can you talk about maybe the mental head game there or just anything you told yourself when you were really uncomfortable and you were tempted to mail it in or you were tempted to feel sorry for yourself? Like what's Al Buford telling himself when, when you're up against that feeling? You know, selection is an ongoing process. You know, that's, that's part of what you tell yourself. And, you know, you have to do your part every day. You got to go the extra mile to contribute. And, and, and But I think, I think it comes down to when you get on a really tight team of people that you respect and that you would do anything for, you know, I mean, you would do anything for your, for your teammates not letting them down is something that is always at the forefront of your mind. And so it drives your behavior with respect to the discipline to stay fit, the discipline to maintain your, your skills, and the, the personal discipline to, 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 be, to behave in a way that's respectful to everyone and to represent the organization in a way that is respectable. All of those things are always at the forefront of your mind because you do not want to let your teammates down. You know, it's, it's, it's just a matter of... Uh, personal pride. And, uh, you know, you want to be valued uh, as a contributor to the team and to the organization's mission. You know, it's interesting. Again, one thing, another, this is another principle, it feels like on the opposite end, opposite end of the spectrum from selfishness, right? Con considering others, considering what we think we ought to do for them. Like, interesting how that helps our own survival. It helps everyone else. Anyways, that was my takeaway from what you were saying there. I mean, it's it's different if somebody joins the, the military because they want a technical skill and they want a job and they can't get a job where they are. And you go in to be a, an x-ray technician, for example, and then you get out of the military and you're an x-ray technician. I mean, that all there's a there's a pragmatic reason for doing that. But if you join the military because you want adventure or you feel a sense of, you know, you want to serve your country like your father did and your grandfather did and your great-grandfather did, and you want to do your part to earn your keep in your country. You know, freedom isn't free. Somebody's got to go pay that price. You know, if you're doing it for those reasons, it's, 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 it's very different than doing it for the pragmatic reasons that we talked about, you know, before. And it's, it fuels you, you know, to, to be out there doing hard things because you're driven by, you know, the love of your country, you know. And I, I having been to quite a few countries around the world, I'm, I'm, I'm quite confident that even though our system is not perfect and our country's not perfect and anything involving humans will never be perfect, you know, people aren't getting on rafts in Miami and paddling to Cuba, right? 
people are getting on rafts in Cuba and coming to Miami. So that should tell that should tell you something about what our country is and what it isn't. And so people vote with their feet, you know. They're not trying to get across the border into Mexico. They're not leaving, they're not in droves leaving, you know, El Paso to get down to Mexico to live, you know. So they're coming the other way. And so we're we're not perfect, but as it relates to being a proud American and wanting to, you know, serve my country and continue to serve with our business, you know, that that drives that drives you to to try to be a contributor and to try to live up, you know, and your teammates have the same feeling. You know, you're all proud of it. And uh, you know, you, you don't want to let them down. It's 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 a deep deep serving a higher purpose. You know, like Simon Sinek's book, you know, start with why. You know, m- most people that I ever worked with in military in the military, they it was all about being on a great team with an important mission was the most valuable thing to us in the world. We, we didn't make phenomenal money for it, but we were doing it because of what we, we love being a patriot, you know, being, being a good American, contributing. And in business, we've found our way into doing the same thing, creating an organization where the folks in our company feel like they're a part of a great team with an important mission. We've got a bunch of little different missions going on, depending on what part of the company you're in. But, you know, the folks back here in accounting that are, you know, doing expense reports and, and you know, payroll and all that, that would be Emily and Stephanie. They, they, they are on a great team with an important mission and they know it. I love it. So maybe to end off here, Al, for people who want to find out more about the company, what is the website for Patriot Group? It's a pat p a t group g r o u p i dot com for Patriot Group International, right? Yep, patgroupi.com. I love it. Well, everybody, please tune in for uh, part four of our mini series on special operations lessons for business. Thanks, Al. Thanks. <laughs>